0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Over these last few pandemic-affected months, this program has featured authors, art historians, cultural historians, curators, biographers, critics, museum directors, and the co-director of a triennial. Finally, with art museums reopening in many parts of the United States, we have an artist on the program this week for the first time in two months, with many more to come. Hooray! My first guest this week is Torquasi Dyson, The New Orleans Museum of Art is showing Torquasi Dyson Black Compositional Thought 15 Paintings for the Plantation Ocene, a series of works made for the museum. These new paintings were inspired by Dyson's interest in the systems that underlay water delivery, energy infrastructure, and by the physical impacts of climate change. Through this and other work, Dyson investigates the legacy of agriculture enabled by slave economies and its relationship to the environmental and infrastructural issues of the present a relation known as the Plantation Ocene. The exhibition is on view in New Orleans through December 31st. Dyson is also an artist-in-residence at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University in Columbus. She is preparing work that will be included in Climate Changing on Artists, Institutions, and the Social Environment, which is scheduled to debut at the Wexner on January 30th, 2021. Dyson's previous solo museum exhibitions have been at the Arthur Ross Architecture Gallery at Columbia University, the Irwin S. Channon School of Architecture at Cooper Union, at the Colby College Museum of Art, the Drawing Center and IBEAM, both in New York, and more. Her work is in the permanent collections of the Smith College Museum of Art, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. On the second segment, historian and curator Dennis Reed joins me to discuss the J. Paul Getty Museum's acquisition of 79 pictures made by Japanese-American photographers between 1919 and 1940. But first, Tarquasi Dyson, after the break. Support for The Man podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view through February 7th, 2021 at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals—installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected—books, records, musical instruments, and other objects—from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit, or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit PulitzerArts.org. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations— bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty.edu. And we're back. Torquoise Dyson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: For most of the last decade or so, you have worked in a mode that brings history and architecture and geographies and lots of other things to abstraction. I want to start a little earlier than that, back in around 2009 when you were making more explicitly representational work, such as Oil and Fauna Don't Mix, works with with recognizable fauna, (laughs) if you will. So what prompted you or motivated you or informed you as your practice developed to embrace a more abstract language?
1: That work, which we spoke a little bit about earlier at the um, Arlington Arts Center and before at the Corcoran, all of that work was much about war and extraction the Iraq War at the time, and I was consumed with understanding these sort of systems of extraction that would lead to huge government catastrophes and terrorism, and what was all of this violence and technology about as it pertains to environmental, you know, well-being. So the floor and final work came out and the oil work came out of really trying to understand the Iraq war at the time and before that, having some questions about materiality and globalization and consumerism and trade. So once I had you know worked and through those questions, I needed, I think, signs and symbols, to understand what was going on in the news and what was going on in the papers and what was going on all around me that seemed so far away, right? So at that time, representation and even that kind of abstraction within representation was for me to really understand in a palpable way, these, all of these issues, so I needed Images of whales and I needed images of tanks and I needed images of, you know, what the time, like skulls and octopus and, you know, and I needed them to be made out of materials that I recognize in my quotidian life. So all of that sort of was a moment where these histories were being pieced together, these global histories and local histories of war and environment were being pieced together together through the work so it was just a matter of you know me dealing with the time the context the space the massive and ma- macro understanding of it all and then how it played into my sort of everyday life you know so i needed that relationship to really understand those global conditions and i use representation to get at that
0: your your work still deals with a lot of those issues well we'll be talking more about some of them, particularly as they relate to the work on View in New Orleans. Did you move away from representation through your drawing practice, which is quite extensive, or or through other ways? What what kind of got you toward abstraction?
1: So what got me to abstraction was actually Hurricane Katrina, in that at the time I was teaching at Spelman College and I was working in that, you know, vein of representation and material and, you know, really making work. Then started working with like Hummers and that kind of mode of, you know, that kind of time when like Hummers and these big cars were, you know, similar to tanks riding through cities and urban spaces. So when Hurricane Katrina happened, I was you know, in Atlanta and living there and teaching a teaching painting. And then next thing I know, I had 20 people at my house, right? I had, my loft was full of friends of mine and people I had, you know, just met come up to Atlanta from New Orleans. And these folks had packed early. They heard the hurricane was coming. And so they kind of locked down their homes and then came up. So a few of my friends came up and then they told other people because the, the space was large to come up as well. And, you know, one day I just sort of looked out as we were, you know, sharing space and getting food and driving around. And a lot of them were musicians. Something else just clicked. And I think it clicked because I had was studying, you know, solar energy, was studying all these these other things before and knew that now this is where something, you know, visceral, you know, and and tragic, but also liberating, like the movement had hit me, you know, and what climate migration looks like for black bodies in particular hit me. And so all of these things were now permeating my mind and thoughts and spirit in a way that I started looking into the history of black movement and thinking about the sort of history of, you know, liberation and what does it mean to insist on and fight for your life in both in terror and in opportunity. So when when I dove into the policy around Katrina and the the underdevelopment and the, the the land grabbing and the horror, which was that aftermath and the representation of it, I just, it, it propelled me into questions of geography and atmosphere that then led me to question the history of how Black people got away, you know, what we did to move. And furthermore, how those histories, you know, were very in tune with indigenism and how those histories you know we were all interconnected in that way so the images and the representations and you know the abstractions from representations they weren't getting at for me what now i needed to know right what now i needed to be connected with so it became a question of you know cartography it became a question of geography it became a question of mapping it became a question of space right so now that I had some kind of understanding how the history of Western modern industrialization happened, and that sort of war mongering happened, and why that is so connected to extraction, environmentalism and power and capital patriarchy that now I had a you know now it was like coming into okay, what about resistance, what about liberation what about how do we you know function in these things and what and as I understood those histories, I understood and was inspired by what it took to do these things, like what it takes to move one's body, distances, what it takes to understand, you know to, to not know geographies and still move through them, what it takes for what it takes for like small acts of liberation on plantation versus large acts of like moving and you know leaving and hiding and tucking and. Running and walking and whispering, like all of these things, didn't have a representation that I could get at that would allow me the real acknowledgement of perception. You know, is you know, and what it took to overcome chaos by using one's abilities to perceive and move forward in any kind of like organized way so the paintings became more about you know atmosphere and instincts and perception and not the question of looking at something but the question of what does it mean to look through something right so it became this drawing practice that then i embodied in my studio right so I started, you know, thinking about mark differently, line differently, ideas of distance and perception, conceptualization of space, you know, how people use space as, you know, liberatory acts or spaces form so that I can get at these stories that, you know, talked about air and gravity and weight and density and scale and interiority that taught me something new about those histories, something more intricate about those histories. And, you know, abstraction or what we, we, we call this abstraction, but this mode of making, it teaches me, gets me closer to, it puts me in relationship even more to understanding the power of those kind of abilities of perception and and. and The range of one's capability to self liberate, you know, in the intimacy of it.
0: Your family has, has a migration story. Your family, I think it was your grandfather, migrated from New Orleans to Chicago. In this period, when you're working through the questions and issues and information you just discussed, was any of that family history important to you, relevant to you, part of what you worked through?
1: You know, now I understand a person who's sort of diving deep into these conditions is that all of these things are like running these parallel tracks, right? So as I understand what was going on to Katrina, I also knew that I would never be able to get my grandfather's birth records. You know, as I understood what happened to, you know, the the land of New Orleans, it, it erased in my mind, in my imagination, what you know, and why my grandfather and my great grandfather, to some extent, any kind of paper trail I would have of their histories. So my grandfather, so the family story goes, owned a block of houses in New Orleans. And so he was run out of town by the Ku Klux Klan, taking his children to Chicago, where he then bought a, I think, a 20 unit complex on Champlain. Where he then, you know, designed his own house in Chicago, and he bought his children homes, and and did this because he was a contractor, right? He understood architecture, and I'm and I'm learning this over the years. But the more I understand it, as I as I'm saying, I'm you know, as I'm expressing to you that I'm working on these parallel tracks. I'm learning that. The same time, I'm learning about the history of architecture and what it has been and done to the black body, and about the history of, you know, environmental degradation, post technologies of extraction and burning coal. So now I understand that these things are all woven together. And those histories, those family histories in particular, my my grandmother was Seminole, who is from Pensacola, Florida. And how did she get to Chicago? And my father's people are from Alabama. How did they then get to Chicago and Maryland, right? So it's, you know, now that I know what questions to ask, and moreover, what conditions my ancestors moved through and from, I'm now, you know, acutely aware that this knowing in my own body and knowing in my intellectual space are indelibly tied, right? So all of this is happening simultaneously.
0: In in these years, as you're working through the the, the issues and histories you just discussed, at the same time, Julie Maritou is making work in which she's also exploring migration and particularly its relationship to form and mark making. Was her work and, and her way of exploring migration in her own work, both drawing and on canvas, is important to you?
1: I think, of course, it was. You know, I think, of course, it was important. I think what's specifically important to me about Julie Maritou's work is the shifts that she makes on her surfaces the marks that she makes and her ideas of like the Frisier, right? What does it mean to, you know, to touch and to have a shape, touch another shape. And because of her own geographic history, there's I think a sense of scale in her work that she understands. And I think from her newest work where she's, you know, incorporating, I would say a figuration, but also an abstraction, there's something, you know, intimate going on there. So, you know, when I think of Julie Moretz, I also think about someone like a Beverly Buchanan, right, who works in these other kinds of conditions of architecture and migration and movement. So all of the women in, in my mind who have a sense of place and movement are all sort of operating for me as a kind of kin. So. I very much like to think about them thinking about movement and form and touch and scale and, you know, and things of things of that nature. Legia Clark, you know, there's so many women who, I think, think about context and geography, and geographic atmosphere and politic of the body, like you know, which is different than someone like a Nancy Holt, I think. So, and not just because of, you know, migration, but of, of acu- a, an acute political awareness of geography and its history and place and in, in movement, an index of movement. Sometimes the indexicals that would be there are erased.
0: That brings me to the last five or six years of your practice in which you have taken, I mean, I I think really like all of those ideas we've been talking about and all of those ways of representing place and architecture and migration. And you've built a vocabulary around a series of shapes related to three figures. All three were slaves who liberated themselves by specific acts of migration. And I'll just quickly go through them here. One was Henry Box Brown, who was an enslaved man from Louisa County, Virginia, which is between Richmond and Charlottesville. Who enclosed himself in a crate, and who freed himself by mailing himself to Philadelphia? Uh, Harriet Jacobs, who escaped slavery by hiding in a in an attic-like space with all the kind of claustrophobia and vernacular-ish architecture that that suggests for nearly a decade, and Anthony Burns, who escaped slavery in the hull of a ship that traveled from uh, Richmond to to Boston. The Burns case is famous for umpteen reasons. It's 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 a it's a critical story in America's antebellum history. The other the experience of experiences of Brown and Jacobs are known through their own narratives through which which they themselves authored. What brought your focus? What led you to kind of laser beam in on the physical structures that each inhabited as parts of their I guess, metaphorical and actual journeys?
1: I knew once I was on a journey to explore Black interiority through painting, sculpture, and drawing, I knew I needed a a language, an idiosyncratic language to pull from to then create images that then would take me to canvases and and art objects that were themselves liberating to the extent that one would experience a condition through eye and touch and perception, feeling of freedom, feeling of atmospheric movement, compositions that were both full of tension and space. And I knew that to get there to the phenomenological, to get to something, for lack of a better word, the sublime, to get to something that felt, that would drive me to participate as an artist uh, who makes objects that would then give or try to give a public that feeling, I knew it needed to come from histories of movement and, and Black interiority. So these three histories, because of their varied conditions in making, Box Brown made, right, the architecture. Harriet Jacobs reformed the architecture, right, drilling holes or, or making holes and thinking about the body and in different events of, of weather and climate. And then, of course, Anthony Burns going and returning and going and returning. So they all had, for me, the stories had been very much emblematic of self-determination, cooperation. What does it mean to depend and interdepend on spaces that you had to trust people, you know, textures, waters, colors, geometries, you know, air, space, time, and most of all distance. Right. So When I figured out that I was going to use the curve, the irregular triangle and the 90 degree angle or the rectangle, I knew that that was enough for me to create a really simple equation that then I would produce out of these phenomenological or try to produce out of them something that was also liberatory to experience. So it was a matter of my goals in relationship to having something that was ontologically tied, you know, or belonged to a liberatory history of perception. And also thinking that I trusted myself if I only had those shapes and if I only had those conditions, if I steeped my... Spirit and thoughts in these histories, I knew that I could push through something else, right? The spirit, the knowledge, the technology, the presence, like all of these things that drove these three individuals that are absolutely representative of a whole nation of people, a whole world of people who self-liberated under different kinds of conditions, but very similar triumphs of interiority i knew i could take it somewhere so it was a matter of strategy and understanding that i needed a, a a place to begin a foundation to begin and if i move these geometric equations around enough under other conditions then it would produce something else right so you know it's a way of knowing that from this sort of, I'll call it, equation—the mathematics of abstraction and the abstraction of mathematics—could get me, to could get me somewhere, and I could honor them and honor these histories and continue to understand through them other liberatory stories. Right. So, the project at Columbia, uh, 1919 Blackwater, where I focused on Eugene Williams. Well, I don't under—I don't know if I could have understood Eugene Williams' story in the story of those boys in Chicago. If I had not had worked through these shapes like I'd done, and committed to you know a kind of studio practice that would allow me to, or rigorously, on page, on painting, and space, push these shapes through to someplace else. So you know, it was a, it was both a strategy because I you know a, a discipline. You know, a form of rigor that I could self-impose in my studio and something that I knew that eventually I could build an improvisational practice from. I needed something. And those three stories really allowed me a greater understanding and greater space and a really a respected and beautiful foundation than to, you know, work towards the path of the continue struggle like you know <laughs> you know in the struggle <laughs> sincerely in the struggle
0: so those those shapes which refer to brown jacobs and burns have recurred over and over again in your work in whatever medium for a number of years now and i want to raise one particular body of work called strange fruit a series of paintings that recall landscape architectural plans in which each circle on the surface stands for a lynching tree and on the surface of those pictures are embedded. And that's probably not the right word. You know, they're they're adhered to the shapes are adhered to the surface. And those shapes are, you know, indeed the shapes we just discussed, the triangle, the four cornered shape and so on. Is that a good example or is that, am I correct in understanding that as an example of how you have built your symbols and visual vocabulary into Abstract history painting into paintings that link slavery to a, a a later white a later white violence.
1: So, "Strange Fruit" came after a moment where, of course, it was you know it was after "Oil and Fauna" and after my work with Studio South Zero and solar energy and understanding you know because a, p- a period for a period. I stopped painting, right, I stopped painting for years, I don't know, maybe about six years I'd stop painting.
0: Yeah, let me fill in, let me fill in just for a second. Studio South Zero is a project you did in Theaster Gates' backyard, <laughs> in half of a Quonset hut, if I'm remembering correctly, and it was multidisciplinary and not related to, not immediately related to anything wall-mountable. I mean, that's, a, that, that's shorthand, but it's filling in a bit. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Studio South Zero had come from another project I was doing, a public art commission, and I was doing, and so it was, it was so much about architecture, so much about space, so much about, you know, autonomy in space, and it was the largest project I, public project I had done, and it was, it was a disaster in so many ways, it was such a disaster, because I, at the time, thought painting was done, like there was nothing about the environmental crisis of Katrina, the environmental crisis of you know global extraction and the, you know boat bodies. there was nothing that painting could do for me in understanding the you know the crisis of climate change or what was happening. so I turned to solar energy, I turned all these architectural things anyway, so it was a, a horrible a horrible context to work in in that project so I was in the asterisk by then had got the candy house and reformed the candy house and this was all before you know the the full expansion of his practice had happened but I, he was still very much interested in social spaces so I called him throughout this failed project. and I, when it was over I was just kind of devastated but it was fine he said, "Why don't you come to Chicago and try to make a space for an architectural space about autonomy and an off-grid system?" So he did that. I came. You know, we collaborated. He introduced me to some architects. We made it in this back in his backyard. Other artists came in. Well, in that process, I was determined to learn more about architecture. You know, architectural drawing, architectural rendering, because the project before failed because I didn't know enough about architecture. Moreover, I did not know how to really understand what I should not have known and understand the scope of this architectural or or the weight of architecture being controlled by white men. I just hadn't really grasped the sort of degradation within that white architectural system. After that, I was determined to learn more about architecture, which then brought me to landscape architecture, which then brought me to a real opening moment to think about lynching, how lynching was represented in landscape. And moreover, how the history of when when I understood architectural drawing, I also understood how to unkeep architecture. Right. So by teaching myself some ideas and, and methods around, you know, drawing about space. And everything I'd experienced historically, slave castles, slave quarters, all of it just came crashing down. And moreover, the history of the way in which lynching was being represented. And so Strange Fruit came out of that. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute here. You know, it was books and and, and, and literature and photographs on lynching that were all over the place. And I just could not, and I wanted to talk about this as, a, you know, a spatial terrorism, right? And so I'd really gotten into, you know, Ida B. Wells' Red Book, and I had been thinking about other ways to, you know, think about liberation in space. So Strange Fruit came out of representation, right? So when you when you think about architecture and landscape architecture, they have signs and You know, symbols for house, tree, car, door, window, land, bush, you know, all these things. So then I started making the circles to represent the trees. Those are quite literally one-to-one representations of how a landscape architect would, uh, well, not one-to-one, but abstractions of how a landscape architect would signify a tree. And then I just started counting from the red record, thinking about the work of, you know, Ida B. Wells and her journey as a woman, moving, writing, talking about. You talk about a story of Black geography and liberation and movement. That's Ida B. But anyway, so taking those works into something that was on the wall at IBEAM, and I had initially went to IBEAM to do Studio South Zero.
0: The representations of those trees, black and gray circles are layered on top of air quotes your shapes that we were talking about a moment ago so is is that a, a conscious intentional layering of histories on top of each other
1: absolutely it was a way to first think about ground and think about atmosphere and think about the physicality of the painting and then on top of those layers, and I would add these, the circles with my hand. So the hand was very much present. And moreover, it became a very much monastic practice, right? So one circle, another circle after another circle, that piece at the Studio Museum, I did on wall by hand. And I said, you know, I want to make this, I want to make it on the wall. I don't want to make it in an object I said, I need to, they were generous enough to empty the gallery for me. I couldn't have any, well, I would have preferred not to have anyone around. They granted that. And I just thought about those lynchings and I thought about, you know, before the lynching, right. And I thought about, you know, what does it mean to understand those numbers, but moreover over the, the hands, the bodies, the histories, the movement, and to not, you know, spread them out, you know, these horrible images and how we know them, one body, two body, three body, four body, as if nobody else was around, you know, so I decided to, just like I learned in architecture, remake what those trees were, you know, what what those bodies and those photographs were doing, which like making them seem individual and, you know, making them seem as if They weren't surrounded by each other, you know, that these ancestors who died that way in particular, that it was beyond the photographs, beyond those horrific images and beyond the horrific people who were watching it and and executing these things, that it was more about what does it mean to honor and think about the tree, you know, the land, the soil, the geography, the space. And bring it all together, you know, commune a congregation of sorts out of these. So, you know, painting was a really great way to think out loud about what I was thinking about.
0: Another thing you've done with those foundational historically rooted shapes is you have addressed American minimalism and and its history. So I'm thinking, for example, of the trapezoidal shiny plastic sculptures, I think they're plastic, that you showed in 2019 in 1919 Blackwater at Columbia, the show we talked about a moment ago, or the Tony Smith recalling forms in your show in 2019 at Pace, or the Tony Smith and, for that matter, Carl Andre recalling shapes in your 2016 I-Beam show, shapes that recall or shapes that are works that reference slave auctions and auction blocks, were you aware of or were you interested in joining your ideas and your shapes to big male minimalism and its shapes and its forms and its processes? Up- updating might be a better word <laughs> now that I know that I
1: No, I'm aware of it because of my MFA. I'm aware of it. And moreover, I studied under Mel Bachner, So I'm really very much aware of it. But I'm also aware, from studying under Mel Bachner, who and Sam Messer, who acutely, me, acutely pointed me to my own subjectivity. It wasn't, and at that time, I was very much interested in oceans and and very much thinking about the transatlantic slave trade in different in different language, but the but the aesthetic and the the form and the 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 objects came out of a deep subjectivity. So. I was very much supported because of that, that education and my, you know, just foundational, who I was foundationally in Chicago. It all supported my sort of permission to go in that direction, regardless of who had gone in that direction before. So I was aware that it may rub up against that. So I sort of eventually like dove first into those artists and who I came up with who I wouldn't, you know, who I regard as really an influence in my work is Tony Smith, right? But moreover, how he arrived at his shape and how he talked about exhausting the possibility of architectural spiritualism spiritualism, that wasn't necessarily something that the United States could give, give him. The way in which he came up with these architectural shapes was because he understood the underdevelopment of, of spirituality and architectural freedom in these United States. So what does it mean to push a geometry that way? So in that way, I'm sort of pushing and projecting geometry from these histories that someone could say are in relationship to those, but they don't have really anything to do with those, but that, but for the fact, that we are people who are making art objects, we are thinking about geometry, body, space and real time, but where I've landed with my shape and form is completely without consideration of those men.
0: So that's a good transition to the paintings you have on view now at the New Orleans Museum of Art. The paintings address the plantation scene, a word used to reference the relationship between Plantation agriculture, slavery, and contemporary capitalism. In a lot of these paintings, there is a a white line, a tapered white line, that that runs nearly the entire length of of the paintings. So they're 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 not they're, they're tapered lines. They're kind of particularly acute isosceles triangles in a way, which could connect them to to Harriet Jacobs and her story and your visual vocabulary. What is that white line for you? How does it work in those paintings?
1: So what I understand these geometries from my own lived experience, I understand these geometries coming from actually diving in the Atlantic Ocean specifically.
0: We should tell people you are a scuba diver.
1: I am a scuba diver. When
0: you say diving, you mean it literally.
1: (laughs) I mean, yes, sorry. (laughs) Right. So part of the practice was to learn how to scuba dive and to go see extraction points in the Atlantic, more specifically the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf Coast. So because that's where my people are from, right up from Florida to New Orleans, moving through those waters is, you know, very important to me. So what that line in the paintings in particular represents a meter, right? So when you're diving and there is a condition of buoyancy, all of these conditions are sort of operating simultaneously. You have a condition of buoyancy, your own body, right? The weight above your body the extraction point, meaning the, uh, the the pump or the the rig. Then you have the boat, and then you have the ocean and light, and then you have the ancestorship, right? So, and the histories of waters as superhighways. So all of these paintings I have made simultaneously. So all of the smaller rectangle pieces in the show I put on a wall and made them at the same time. And so what happened in the studio was that I was losing a sense of direction, right, in the work. And because I was acutely aware of what does it mean to be brought in through the Atlantic from both Virginia, the islands, the southern parts of the United States move through land, and now the cotton industry exhausting the soil, moving west, like all of this movement that originated on water and from water. So I was thinking about something that could allow me to sort of center myself or meter myself in the paintings that then was tied into the sort of lexicon of geometries, right? So this, the triangle that sort of shoots through or projects through the space most often time in the center, was a sort of infrastructure I'd added to all of the paintings similarly in location and composition that would acknowledge both ideas of distance and place and settle me as I'm making all of these paintings simultaneously. They act as an anchor. They act as a, a sort of compositional reality that sort of bisects almost the center, but off-center keeps me aware of the symmetry and keeping me aware that oftentimes uh, composition with a shape language can land in the didactic, right, in a really, I think, positive way in that it gives you immediate information. But then when you have this sort of didactic condition capable of revealing itself in geometric abstraction, How do you then push against that to something atmospheric? So I'm aware of those tensions between the hard and the soft, the didactic and the poetic, the sort of mark making and fluidity of the paint next to something that is, you know, sort of diametrically opposed to that in the same picture plane.
0: Well, speaking of the picture plane, they recall pipelines, a pipeline receding into the distance as if it was slammed up into the picture plane.
1: Absolutely. So the pipelines are moving throughout all of the paintings. And the, I'll say this, the word I'm looking for is rectilinear. Okay. So like pipelines, when you understand them as <laughs> multi-directional, as a network of systems, you know, in our oceans that along with Oil also runs all sorts of materials of technology that they are operating um, now violently. So as a different kind of false or I'll, I'll call it an invasion into <laughs> the body of the earth. And so these this sort of virus now, um, this human produced virus of pipelines that are you know, constantly running through the earth to provide all kinds of different services. In the paintings, I needed them to not be central, but to oscillate. The geometry projected into the space in the terms of the rectilinear needed to, you know, oscillate in a still picture plane. So what does it mean to use scale and different kinds of geometries and different kinds of perspective tools to create an illusion of, you know, oscillation, while there's also something that is, you know, grounded, and not oscillating at all, right? So you have the water that's never in the same place, you know, twice, you have the the pipelines that are indetectable, right? They're indetectable, that they're, they're opaque. We don't know how many, where, where they, I mean, this kind of, you know, this secret violence of pipelines along the, uh, around the world and extraction. Some are known, some are not known. But then you have what what you can very well see as a sort of tourist of the ocean now, large extraction points where you have the, the oil tank, the rig, the pump that are all all littering the ocean. So those perspective moves are about, for me, giving a sense of movement of different paces that you experience as a diver.
0: I want to transition to a body of work you're working on now called Bird and Lava. And I want to do that by Pointing to, you know, before we get into some of the specifics of, of the Bird and Lava work, one one element that recurs in, in quite a lot of your work, including 15 paintings for the Plantation Ocene, a word I seem to be having a hard time pronouncing, <laughs> and the Bird and Lava work, is that you often play shiny surfaces off of matte surfaces, whether that's sculpture or on paintings. Why is that a thing for you?
1: Reflective light and the way in which surfaces can absorb light and not only you know in the history of you know painting has it formally achieved a condition of depth in the paintings and for me it also represents a kind of geography and geology that's inherent in the work water as geography you know oil as liquid from the earth that has a shiny surface these sort of matte conditions of soil and earth and ground. And all of it has a condition of state change, right? So something goes, something that's wet, like what I use in the work a liquid graphite, can very much look like oil in the beginning, but through a condition of state change, it can go to very matte, right? So reflective surfaces in relationship to the matte surfaces is deployed to really, you know, exacerbate conditions of being in closeness and distance and motion and and that things constantly change. And so with the reflective surfaces, of course, what they do is they reflect, right, the atmosphere around them. So a lot of the work reflects the light of the room it reflects the the body of the viewer standing in front of it and the the matte surface really pulls the viewer in to see what is absorbing all of that light what is creating that void which is also you know a glissant political term that we belong to the void the void is what we have in common so all of these things i'm acutely aware of when you know making the paintings that are you know, asking the audience to, you know, really experience the planet, the earth, the materials from the plastic to the graphite to the soil and their capabilities. And thinking about, depending on the site, especially in bird and lava, thinking about, you know, an amalgamation of what does it mean to have a surface that reflects a sh- maybe even a shadow or index of the viewer, but also. Lots of water, you know, and the conundrum of the color of water, right, which has no color, right? Water does not inherently have a color. So when you're looking out into the ocean and you're looking into liquid and you're looking into light that is, appears black or blue, you know, those things are the appearance of something, but not it in of itself, right? So... With Bird and Lava, it was very much about, you know, this new shape that I'd come up with, the the trapezoid and the the circle.
0: Let me, yeah, let me quickly describe it. It's a circle, and then from the bottom of the circle, a kind of trapezoidal shape extends down through the thing, whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional.
1: This is my, this is a shape that I've landed on. This is the shape that I feel like I've wor- been working my whole career to get to, wh- which I call before hypershape. So the, the amalgamation of Burns and Box and Harriet, those were uh, what I've called hypershapes. Composing the hypershapes over and over and working them through and pushing them through this lexicon, this equation, which I call hypershapes, landed me at this shape. Because what it does, it's an amalgamation of all of these shapes, all of these geometries, that landed me in a, landed me in a place of pure, you know, emptiness, if I can say this, of a, a, a sort of moment of clarity, a moment of um, where I was making. I found a container that I would say these sort of history of ancestral libera- liberation brought me to, right? So trapezoid and the shir- circle, from everything that I've been reading and looking at and learning, I was I was able in my mind to invent a shape. And I'm, I'm doing a lot of looking that, that I hadn't seen before in the canon, but that was coming from my own rigor in the studio to get to, but that, that was informed by these, histories and histories of the likes
0: Speci- specifically histories of black liberation
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely So this the surfaces with the show with this last this next project at pace those surfaces I was able to spend time on that particular shape and really get to the surface quality, get to the tonality, get to the sort of oscillation of light line and images like I'd never done before. So instead of tossing these shapes around and moving them around to get something that expressed an experience, now with this particular shape, the hyper shapes have landed, for now anyway, in a moment where all of those things all of the things I'm thinking, all of the things I'm feeling, all of the knowledge and emotion that goes into this this, this one shape can host all of that. Before, I was using these shapes as a way to express something, and the, the 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 canvas was the thing that hosted that expression. But now I have a shape that itself is autonomous, and in it, I can host those expressions. Right. So whether it's a drawing, whether it's a sculpture, whether it's a painting, the, the geometry of the trapezoid in the circle then become a place to host this information. So the surfaces become the areas that are, you know, composed in these different sort of sections, Hold different kinds of information.
0: So, so as you kind of referenced right there, this is a shape you are using in paintings. In drawings, so in, in two-dimensional works, in, in sculpture, in three-dimensional works, this show is, you're still making this work, and, and, and it's scheduled to be shown in 2021 at the Wexner. So, of course, things can change, as we've certainly learned <laughs> in the last six months. And then you've also been playing around in the studio with three-dimensional modeling and animation. Why is migrating that shape into all of those different media and dimensions, if you will, core to the project
1: I'm finally you know being myself right it's just something that I don't know if I can explain it it's something that I feel like it's something that I made right it's the thing that doesn't necessarily in its existence have in its embodiment have a direct reference to something else it's because of those things right it it exists because of those things but I can't necessarily point to this form and say that that form is something else, right? I can say that that form is a moment of pure perception for me. So with the animations and the drawings and the stop animations in particular, I can say that in the language of invention, if that's even possible now with the history of art making, I have created a a geometric condition, an equation that I think really and expresses my work to get through the hyper shape.
0: Because because you can migrate it into all of these forms in medium, you, you might as well, to use a particularly male term spread out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. It's uh, I think the, the 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 forms allow me to test myself, right? So if this shape, the trapezoid and the circle, if this composition is something that I've produced out of the hyper shapes and it lands at something that may be didactic, may be symbolic, maybe still, right? If I've landed on this is the shape, this is the form, what does it mean to then test it? What does it mean to put it up against something liquid? What does it mean to put it up against something iron? What does it mean to put it up against something transparent? What does it mean to put it up against something flat or, you know, the curvilinear and a rectilinear composition? What does it mean to really force it to host the haptic? What does it mean to host the questions of the industrial? What does it mean to host the questions of improvisation and movement? So this form that has come out of my work with the hypershape is really important in Bird and Lava, because if I've landed on something that I think is an essential part of all of my research, then I need to test it further. I need to push it further. I need to toss it around, right? And so I've moved from tossing those three shapes, the rectangle, the triangle, and the curve from tossing it around to now tossing this particular amalgamation of all of those practices around. And I can do it through material now that I'm situated, I've situated myself. So I think it's the most monastic moment in the practice.
0: I love that. That's great. Torquase Dyson. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the arts press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford and Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, and papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Before we get to the second segment, if you have a chance to give us a five star rating at Apple Podcasts and a review, that would be much appreciated. Thanks very much. Next up, historian and curator Dennis Reed, who joins me to discuss the J. Paul Getty Museum's acquisition of 79 pictures made by Japanese American photographers between 1919 and 1940. Reed's collection, and indeed the Getty's acquisition of it, are a result of 35 years of work Reed and his students at Los Angeles Valley College did to learn about Japanese-American photographers who made work before World War II. Reed and his students built a list of 186 names from photography catalogs at UCLA's Charles E. Young Research Library and painstakingly cold-called the photographers or their relatives in an effort to build knowledge related to an art-making community that was disappeared by the illegal American internment of Japanese-Americans. Reed's collection, which includes the only surviving work by several of the artists, has been exhibited in venues such as the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York and the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington. The Getty, which remains closed due to the pandemic, will be exhibiting work from the acquisition at a date to be announced. In addition to the images we'll have on manpodcast.com, the Getty and Google created a slideshow of work from the acquisition. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. Dennis Reed, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Oh, Thank you. I appreciate being
0: here. The pictures in this New Getty acquisition and in what will eventually be an exhibition, although, of course, thanks to things like scheduling and the pandemic, Lord only knows when. (laughs) These pictures predate the creation of the Japanese camera pictorialists of California, which was a key early Southern California camera club. But for the moment, let's start there. What was the club and was it only a Southern California concern?
2: that particular club that you mentioned was just los angeles even though they say california it was just los angeles there were similar clubs there was one in seattle and one in san francisco but the one you mentioned was just in los angeles it was made up the members were made up of japanese immigrants who came to the united states around the turn of the last century and they came by the way as teenagers They're between about 14 and 19 years old so they were young And surprisingly, they took up art photography and formed clubs. There was a club, that club, in Los Angeles. There was also a club in Seattle and a club in San Francisco. And they saw the work that they produced published all over the world and exhibited all over the world. Before, of course, the World War II, the onset of World War II, and the incarceration, the mass incarceration of, of Japanese Americans resulted in the loss of many, if not most, of their
0: works. So there are 79 pictures in the Getty acquisition. And as you you mentioned, the clubs were up and down the West Coast. There are photographers within the acquisition from up and down the West Coast. So were the clubs important in terms of networking and sharing ideas, or did they not have much Connection with each other, or do we not know?
2: Oh no, they they were very connected to one one another. You know, most of the people who came, most of the immigrants who came from Japan, were farmers, or their families were farmers in Japan. And the gentlemen who became photographers art photographers. Most of them made their living in other things. They were uh, farmers, gardeners, cooks, worked in laundries, sold shoes, whatever. One was a doctor that I can think of, but a few became professional photographers, but not that many because each of their communities could only support so many professional photographers. But they joined these clubs and it was a way, you know, the Japanese, even as farmers, one of the things that made them successful here was they worked collaboratively. And they did that in their photography too. We tend to think of artist, our sort of Western notion of artist, is the, the lone genius who invents some new way of, of seeing the world. And these gentlemen did not work like that at all. They would go on outings together. They did that because they could collaborate also because it was safer and a fairly racist environment to go as a group rather than singly. So they would go out and photograph together. They would go to the mountains, they would go to the beach, and they would come back to the club. And I'm thinking particularly the club in Los Angeles, they would come back and have critiques. They would have a monthly exhibition. You were expected as a club member to have at least one new photograph to show every month. And they were critiqued, looked at, at one point, they had equipment, you know, dark room that you could use at the club. So they were very important in that regard. And I think the club in L.A., the founding member uh, and sort of the master teacher he was regarded that way was a man by the name of uh, Kiyoshi Shimajima. He was really inspirational, but he was a taskmaster, too. I met six of these gentlemen before they all passed away. And one of them, Kanashikato, told me he when he joined the club, he worked for three years before he could produce a negative and a print that Shima Jima would approve. Although when Kato sent it off to exhibitions, it was never refused. It was never declined, but it took it took him that long to just get that first print that Shima Shima would agree. So so there was they, they set standards and and, and and they would discuss what were typical good subjects and it was quite a vibrant community. And then of course they also hosted each of them hosted salons. I mean these these exhibitions, and they would invite. Uh, members from the other club, like one of the first clubs that the Los Angeles group has, it invites as a club in New York, and they invited uh, photographs from them. Uh, one of the r- really remarkable things about the Los Angeles club is the the sort of leading early art photographer in Japan, uh, Shinzo Fukuhara, They did an exhibition uh, in their club rooms of his work and his. His club members worked, and they actually did three over several years. And as far as I know, they actually says in the catalog that it's the first exhibition of their work in the United States. As far as I know, it's the only one. So they had connections with the clubs here and with the groups in Japan as well.
0: One of the things about these seventy nine pictures that jumps out at me is. The range of interests that the individual photographers had. So you would have somebody like Akira Furukawa who makes, for example, a fairly traditional still life out of plates and dishes and such. Or and 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 you have pictorialist pictures like Kumezu Ota's "The Ripple," which would almost be in place in you know a Stieglitz or Anne Brigman circle pictorialist show, and then you have these very modern, really quite suprematist Hiromu Kiras from the 1920s that are nearly abstract. And and indeed, there are abstractions. There's a Toyo Miyataki of headstones, you know, that's, that's absolutely an abstraction. Should we be surprised at the range of interests by the picture makers? Should we be surprised that there was not, apparently, a club style, if you will?
2: You, know, I think there is a club style. Well, not a club, but let's just, I, a Japanese-American style. I mean, I just would refer to it as is a Japanese decorative style. It's, you know, no matter what they were shooting, they usually did one or two things. They If they're shooting outside, and, and you see this, oh, and just... Many, I would almost say, most of the photographs. If you take like shijimi Ueda's photograph of reflections on oil ditches, which is one of those modernist images, you know, he he tilted his camera down to lift the horizon line up out of the picture, which helps defeat that sort of Western insistence on perspective, you know, on, on deep perspective, and takes that oil field or it could be whatever else they're shooting and brings it up closer to the picture plane, parallel to the picture plane. So that they have a flat surface upon which to express this decorative urge that they had, whether they were maybe like with Kira, you mentioned Her Kira. He did the for example the cutout of cardboard and then put a, a later a little Paper crane on top of it.
0: That's so great. He called it Study and Design 1928.
2: Yeah, it, yeah <laughs> that was one. He did a number of those.
0: Paper Bird is another. We'll have images on manpodcast.com.
2: So again, whether it's outside or whether they're photographing still life's inside, they would either you know they would tilt that camera down or they would photograph against a flat wall, all of this giving them a very shallow space in which they could arrange the elements of design that make up their photographs so I think that's a fundamental characteristic. another characteristic is nature they just Loved nature. It's so important to the aesthetic of Japan. If you think about, you know, Shintoism, for example, and nature is so fundamental. And of course, water and its various attitudes is, is probably their favorite theme. And water is so important in Japan, too. I mean, you know, from whether it's a tsunami, rainfall, the ocean that surrounds the islands, it's crucial. So water was really important to them, and it plays out in their pictures. So there's a lot of themes like that that are kind of consistent. There's other things that, for example, they did do, and you never, you I can't think of offhand of a single exception. You don't see them reproduced. But they did some nudes, a very limited number, but they did some nudes. Now, nudes are not a tradition of Japan. That's a European tradition. So they did explore that, but they, they didn't do it to the that they did other things, and they never exhibited them that, that I can think of. So they explored, you know, as artists do a number of different things, but they did have certain subjects like like nature, like still life, portraiture, that they did, some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree.
0: But there's still, a, it seems to me, within the pictures, no expectation that there be an adherence to a pictorialist style or that there be an adherence to a modernist style and crisp edges, if you will?
2: You know, I think this is one of the things that interested me most early on about them. I had frankly such a distaste, we'll say, for pictorialism. I really, I just thought it was the equivalent of what we call here a eucalyptus school painters, which are kind of really from the same period. And that that these gentlemen worked within that tradition, and yet at the same time, produced these modernist looking images was one of the things that intrigued me about them most. I, I've since, con- you know, changed my opinion about pictorialism. I I think, it, you know, we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater term- when it comes to pictorialism. There, there were so many, I mean, thousands of pictorial photographers, and some of them were just terrible photographers. I mean, the subjects are hokey and corny and can be campy. I hate to use the word kitchen campy myself, but they can be that. But there were some really outstanding pictorial photographers, I believe, even in the later years. I'm, I'm talking past the, the golden years of Stieglitz and Steichen and the rest. I mean, after the 1910 Albert Knox show, there's still excellent pictorial photographers, I believe. But that was one of my the things that interested me most was how could these men with this modernist leaning work within this relatively conservative tradition. and But they did. So they did produce works that fit more cl- closely with what we would describe pictor- as pictorial, and yet did other works that you would look at and say, this is not pictorialism, even though these were shown in pictorial salons. This is not pictorialism. It's modernism.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about how Japanese-American photographers in California are exhibiting not just up and down the Pacific Coast, but in Tokyo and Paris and elsewhere in Asia and Europe. Do we know how that worked, how their how their work came to be known in other places?
2: Yes, and that was one of the real benefits of pictorialism. You know, this is a period where... Really I mean there there are a few Japanese artists, Noguchi for example, and such who who worked during this period within the standard sort of Western European model of galleries and museums but that was not an avenue open really to most of these gentlemen, no matter how good they are, like Mukuro, who I think was or Miyatake were both outstanding artists. So, what pictorialism provided, I mean, it was a great network of exhibitions. All these clubs, these clubs, you almost can't find a major city in the 1920s and 30s that doesn't have a club and doesn't have an international exhibition. And all pictorials, including the Japanese Americans, would send off their photographs to these exhibitions, and then there were there were various club and related magazines like photo era camera craft american photography and you often the works reproduced in those magazines came out of those salons and the japanese were incredibly successful i mean they just they dominate some salons and so their work because of that was published i mean we talked about oil ditch by Ueda. that was reproduced of course here in America it was re- reproduced in England reproduced in Germany, it was even reproduced in Soviet photo now there were not many American photographers reproduced in Soviet photo in the 1920s It and, and, and the photograph called Evening Wave by Kintero Nakamura, in fact it might have been reduced, reproduced even a little bit more but it also was reproduced in Soviet photo, which is just remarkable, I think. He
0: was aware of that. You mentioned that one of the major concerns of this group of photographers was nature. Another that jumps out at me is pairings or joinings or juxtapositions of the organic and the more industrial within single pictures. Hiromu Kira, who also made the the suprematist works I referenced a few minutes ago, um, there's a picture of his called An Arrangement, which plays Japanese ceramics off of a grid. There's a picture like Fy Sato's untitled picture that plays a modernist staircase off of a tree trunk and limbs that kind of wind their own way upward. Is there any reason you've thought of or know of why the playing of the industrial against the organic would have been of particular interest?
2: I can't recall that any of the photographers I met actually talked about it or described it. But, you you know, one of the good examples of that, if I'm understanding what you mean, is probably Hiramukiras, the thinker. That's the one of the man out on what looks like the curving steps. And, and there you've got the human against this austere, sweeping kind of background. And it's a great story about that photograph, too. So you've got this man, and he looks dwarf. People first look at that photograph and think they're steps, and of course they're not. You re- suddenly realize that because the man is so dwarf that these they're out of scale. So you have here, that's why I'm thinking of that, when you've got this kind of oversized industrialism playing against this isolated man, who I, um, my friend uh, Colin Westerbeck, the uh, curator, uh, critic, uh, described it as he's waiting for Godot and he does feel like he's... And Christopher, actually Christopher Knight, the LA Times critic, wrote about this and how it, 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 it sort of anticipated how he and the other Japanese Americans were about to be swept away in historical events. And of course, the historical event is World War II and, and the incarceration of Japanese Americans. But uh, the story behind this, by the way, Kira... He was working at Iwata's art store, which was in in Little Tokyo, and it was a major hub for the for the photographers. And Kira worked there with a number of others. He worked in the darkroom, processing, making prints, and so on. But he also helped out in other ways. And the owner of Iwata's asked him to take this gentleman out, who had just bought their very most expensive camera. So the owner says, take him out to places where, you know, he can find something interesting to shoot and show him how to operate the camera. So he takes him to the Hollywood dam. So these what looked like steps are actually the form of the Hollywood dam. And that actually is the man out there who owned the camera. So Kirit used his camera to take this particular shot. And today you can't see that. The dime is still there, of course, but you can't see the steps any longer. They were there after the, Van Norman Dam disaster. This had the same kind of construction, so Mahalan got very worried about it, and he had it, the whole thing covered over with dirt to reinforce it. So that part of the dam is now buried. But anyway, that's the story of the taking of that one. But you're right; they like to play elements against each other, and particularly the human figure. You often find. I mean, I, I don't know. We might. Wish, as modernists in some cases, that there weren't figures. It was just the abstract forms. But that's not characteristic of the Japanese. They they would always want to place a figure to to have that sense of contrast. So I I think that's probably where that comes from. You find it in so many in Itani's eel fishermen, for example. I mean, you just go down. Thought as man walking through this tunnel, you see these isolated figures, in especially against industrial settings, but sometimes settings of nature too.
0: I mentioned in the introduction that this body of work was quite literally assembled by you, in part by by knocking on doors and encouraging people to pull things out of attics and whatnot. What is the work you hope comes next? What are the places and things you hope researchers will pick up and investigate?
2: I think one of the things that prompted my placing this collection with the Getty, besides the fear, you know, it's, it's been about 40 years that I've been working on this. And, I mean, 79 prints doesn't sound like that many, but it is, without question, the most comprehensive collection of this Very scarce material. I started getting very nervous about, you know, what happens. What if, you know, with the wildfires
0: we have here? i was going to say Californians have cause to nerves.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, with earthquakes. What if it was lost? I mean, you know, you feel like a caretaker of it, the steward of it. But uh, I was getting increasingly nervous, and I thought, oh, let's place it. Yeah, you know, it's time for me to place in a, where, in a place where it can be protected. But more than that, we're a place it can be studied and valued. And I think it's time. I mean, I've done three books on these photographers. I'm, I'm really the only one who has. So it's time for somebody to come in, just as you have. You've expressed some, in your questions some really interesting points about these photographs and maybe points that I haven't thought enough about. So it's time for some other people to come in and weigh in on these photographs. You know, it's, it's, it wasn't easy to part with them, but I felt that, you
0: know, it was time to do it and time for other people to take a look at them. I mean, for some of these photographers, we don't even know if they have estates that are active, for example. There are kind of basic biographical questions, if you will.
2: Well, one of the men I met was Kato. And Kato, he was an electrician by trade. He was a member of the club here in Los Angeles. And he's the one who worked for three years to, before Shimojima would agree he had a print worth sending off. And when I met him, this is in the 1980, maybe 81 at the latest, he had, I think, three negatives because they were easy to pack away in a trunk and because you have, you one, maybe two trunks you could take with you to camp. I always thought that was an interesting word, camp. Hmm. But you could take off to, you know, basically it's a prison camp. But prints, no. So he he just, he had, i have forgotten if he, what he did with most of the materials. I think he tried to sell some things, but his prints, he just, he just basically discarded them. So he didn't have a single print, and I have never seen in 40 years a single print by Mr. Cotto. So some of them we don't have their, their images are lost. We don't have that, but we have biographical information on him because he was alive. I met him. In other cases, there are photographs. But like you say, is the good example is Izumi who did this great one of a of called the shadow of a bicycle leaving a frame and he casts this long shadow from the wheel. I know his birth and death dates, and that's about all I know. He died just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He wasn't relocated, and I don't know. I know almost nothing about his life, and yet he produced at least two or three of the, of the just most iconic images by these photographers. But we don't know anything. So maybe, maybe I think you know, other people will come in. Other things, things will surface after he passes. I get a call from his daughter a few years later, and she says, guess what? We just found a box of his prints we didn't even know we had. So things will surface. There are families out there that haven't been found. There are prints that haven't been found that will resurface. Biographical information will at some point. You know surface i'm i it's so much easier now when I first started this in nineteen eighty uh, and I was living out in Thousand Oaks, which is a fair distance from Los Angeles, I would have to drive in and go to the Mormon temple which had a family resource center and they had all the census records, ship records, that all kinds of so I would drive the hour in from Thousand Oaks, spend a day there, maybe get a little tidbit of information and then drive back. Now I can go on the internet and in fifteen minutes have more information. It would have taken me a whole day to get back in nineteen eighty. So it's, you know, more information is coming online. It's being discovered. So I think there'll be information to be found. There will still, I don't think there'll ever be a big group like this group of 79 to be found. I mean, it's comprehensive. You know, there could be 50 prints surfaced by a photographer that are in some closet somewhere we don't know about. But so I think, you know, information will surface. And there's so there's. There's going to be meat for people to to work on to chew on here and and do in the future so i hope I hope people appreciate these and and do scholarly research on them in the future.
0: You mentioned returning to Hiramu Kira's home over and over. There are ten Kira's in in the Getty acquisition. Dennis Reed, thanks so much.
2: Oh thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh I always enjoy talking about these fine photographers.